Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. There is a huge catalog of news and reviews and commentary by all of the contributors in the Dice Tower Network and an enormous list of podcasts on the network, and there's surely something there for everyone. Go check them out at Dicetower.com. The Longview is proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out why Gamesurplus.com is always my first choice when I'm looking to buy a board game online. They have a huge selection of board games, fantastic pricing, uh, super fast shipping. Um, They just have a, a wonderful reputation for being able to grab a board game that you're looking for that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, some of my most recent uh, purchases, like The Colonists and, um, geez, uh, uh, so many games that are difficult to find here uh, are already at Gamesurplus.com. They even get them in before uh, Cool Stuff and, and the other big online retailers. So if you're looking for a game like Railroad Revolution or The Colonists, uh, something that has not yet made it over here, uh, please check Gamesurplus.com out first because chances are you're going to find it there. And if you don't find it, just drop them an email at games at gamesurplus.com and let Carmen know that you're looking for the game and uh, probably he'll be able to get it for you uh, much sooner than you would think. So they really specialize in imports and customer service. So go check out uh, gamesurplus.com and if you do decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined uh, by co-host T.C. Reed and uh, by Stephen, all the way over in England, who was nice enough to volunteer to join us today to talk about the game Glenmore. So, uh, T.C., welcome. Once more into the breach. <laughs> there we go. And Stephen, uh, thanks a lot for uh, agreeing to be on the show again. Welcome to you. Not a problem. Glad to be here. Well, thank you very much. And so um, recently I had kind of uh, posted some messages about the sort of direction of the show um, and, you know, what was going to be happening in the future. And uh, some users had suggested, hey, you know, why don't you post a list of games that maybe you would like to do shows about and other people could come and add their uh, games that perhaps they'd like to talk about. And then maybe we can kind of start to, uh, uh, you know, line some people up and get some content going. And Stephen, you were nice enough to kind of jump in there and say, oh, you know, uh, Glenn Moore, I would I would love to talk about Glenn Moore. And so uh, that's a game that uh, I have played before uh, quite a few times. Uh, TC just uh, kind of got his initiation into it, Stephen. He played it a few times uh, the other night uh, in preparation for this episode. And I understand that this is a, a game that is a favorite of yours, yes? It's uh, one that's <clears throat> it's one that's been in my collection for well since 2010 when it came out. Actually, uh, that I've enjoyed playing over the years and uh, have had the opportunity to play quite a bit. So what was it that hooked you on this game? Was it the designer, Matthias Kramer? Was it the uh, subject matter? Because for myself, uh, my wife and I honeymooned uh, uh, in uh, Scotland. And uh, so as soon as I saw, you know, the, the cover and the title, I'm like, ooh, ooh, you know, <laughs> I want to grab that. Kind of like Isle of Sky was an insta-buy mm. for me because uh, that's actually where we honeymooned. And so uh, what was it about it that attracted uh, you? A bit of the theme, uh, I've got, well, my dad's uh, Scottish, so uh, there is a direct connection there for me. But also, 
the mechanic the mechanics of it the way the track the tr track for taking tiles works was it's not the first game that used that sort of time track but it was the first one i saw with it i was still getting into the hobby when i uh, encountered it yeah, TC, um, that was one of the things that really struck me about the game the first time I played it was that sort of rondelle. It's kind of a square rondelle. Uh, and it uses a system that Matthias Kramer has now used uh, a couple of times. He used it in um, Craft Wagon most recently. And this is where you kind of have uh, tiles that are arranged in kind of a, a circular, kind of clockwise fashion. And the way it works is... Uh, on your turn, you can kind of move uh, as far as you want along this path to select a tile, but then you're not going to get to move and select another tile until you are last. And so, um, you know, oftentimes you're presented with this really interesting decision about, you know, well, God, I really want that tile, but if I do that, uh, I'm going to be sitting here kind of twiddling my thumbs for a while, and who knows, you know, what advantages I may be giving up to my opponents by letting them take that tile. Uh, I don't know. Should I do it? Should I not? And that really drives a lot of the tension in the game. Um, is that something that you found to be kind of unique in this, or have you played other games that use that kind of mechanism, TC? Well, the first time I ran across this particular mechanism was when I spent a whole bunch of money and I got a game called Francis Drake which had that street where you could only go up. It was like a one-way street where you had to go up to the shop and you couldn't go backwards. Okay. Yeah, so seeing, seeing it in Glenn Moore, I was like, oh, maybe this is where it came from. But I really I really like that. The only <laughs> the interesting problem with that, where you, you go up and then you put tiles behind it, is there were several times when we were playing our games, we forgot to put the tiles behind it. We'd get, like, three ahead. We'd get, like, <laughs> yeah. so into the game. you are like, oh, um... We're three tiles behind, guys. You need to put some tiles on this thing. <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. How about you, Steven? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, especially when you, one player's got a couple of turns in a row. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. So the central mechanism of the game as being something that uh, attracted you, I can totally identify with that because that was one of the things that once I started playing it, uh, that was the first time that I had ever seen that done. Uh, so to me, like you, Stephen, uh, that was kind of uh, new ground for me. I know that something similar was kind of done with Shipyard, and I'm going to sit here and use my internet magic and see if I can look up when Shipyard was released. Uh, I think that's Vladimir Sh uh, Sushi, or Sh uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I'm probably not, because I'm really bad uh, with last names. Uh, yeah, Shipyard... Um, came up in 2009 so i don't know whether or not that was something that uh you know might have uh, been something that matthias uh, noticed or or you know said oh this is kind of cool this uh kind of action rondelle and uh kind of thing but uh yeah yeah it was definitely something that intrigued me without a doubt so um now, one of the things about this game that is is kind of interesting is sort of the tableau built that you're going to do with the tiles. Um, but before we get into that, um, Steven or TC, I'll let either of you take this because I haven't played it in a little while. Would either of you like to uh, perhaps do like a little gen general overview of how the game's played in case there's people out there who have not had a chance to check this one out? It's a little early for me, and I've only played it three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go with the expert here. Steven? <laughs> the game is about 
building a Scottish borough in the Highlands. Uh, each player has a uh, meeple on a central the tile rondel, and on your turn, you take your guy and take any tile you like. They're usually, I think it's about 10, depending on the player count. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you take it, pay the cost, which is usually one or two resources, stone and wood. Stone and wood are the mo- most common for the costs. And place it next to one of your guys on your tableau. Then you activate all adjacent tiles and gain the immediate benefit of the tile you've taken, if any. Uh, You also get to activate the tile you've placed. And then that's the end of your turn. There's a market which you can at any time during your turn sell to if you've got spare resources or buy from but only to cover a cost. Uh, And that is a closed economy. So you start the game with six coins and you can then spend those coins but no other coins will be coming into uh, play throughout the game apart from three possible ones from a special tile um the tiles are uh do most of the tiles give you uh resources some like you spend resources uh villages give you more guys and let you move your guys uh yeah, it's the movement of the guys and, and, and the guys themselves that are one of the key aspects of the game. Um, because you, the, these are like these little black beeples that are kind of universal to all players. Yes, yeah, Stephen? And yeah. you have to kind of move them around in order to be able to activate the tiles that you've already placed. Yes? Yes. Uh, you can only pl- place next to one of your uh, black meeples. Uh, you can place a ge- diagonally adjacent to a black meeple, but not diagonally adjacent, but you have to be orthogonally adjacent to something you've already built. Which right. makes the movement a little tricky. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's something that is one of the kind of crucial decisions in the game, because you can't always activate everything in your tableau because you have a limited population. Mm. You also need to take into account what tiles can activate because there are some that give you really powerful ongoing or one-off benefits but don't do anything once they're activated mm-hmm, or which mm-hmm. just let you move your uh, guys around, the, which you need to be doing regularly but if that's all you're doing... That's not going to get you far. Uh, The other thing about picking which tile to take, as well as not being able to ever go back, is that at the end of the game, you lose three points for every tile more than the person with the least tiles you've got. Yeah, that's important. (laughs) Which, (laughs) Which is meaning that every single turn you take essentially costs you three points. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is an interesting thing. Um, TC, do you want to speak to that for a moment? Because it sounds like uh, that's something that you have some recent experience with. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, so one of the things I find uh, – this I don't know if we need to backtrack it, but one of the things I find really fascinating is that the way you build your own Tableau, you really have to pay attention to what other people are doing. Now, generally when I play a game where you pull something from the center, just what you're doing yourself, I lose interest because I like when everybody's interacting in the middle. So, you know, when I first played this, I'm like, oh, I'll just do my own little thing. I'm just going to, like, put cows in the slaughterhouse and just put all these tiles out and just whatever. I don't care what anybody else is doing. That was such a humongous mistake because I ended up with, like, negative 15 or 18 points by the time that <laughs> game was done. I was like, oh, oh, this is – uh, that – it was such an amazing eye-opening moment because that, that made that game so interactive. That one mechanism made it so you had to pay attention. To everything else and like you know if i would jump far ahead that may actually be a good thing because i'm gonna let these other yo-yos put a bunch of towels out and i'm only gonna have like six and they're gonna be like at 12 <laughs> right. <laughs> right right yeah and and it's such an interesting decision point in the game and it's also so unusual as you alluded to there tc that you know oftentimes when we play tableau builders regardless of what game it is, it does kind of feel a little solitarish. And this one really doesn't because of, you know, a couple of simple things in the game that have a large impact on the end game scoring. And so it really is very important uh, that you keep that in mind. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's something that that I have found fascinating when, when I've played the game. Um, so, uh, you know, Stephen, uh, thank you, first of all, for uh, going over the sort of general overview there um, of the game and, and sort of how it's played. And this is a game that is kind of surprising because it, it um, I, I, I don't know that it had a huge splash when it first came out, but it started to um, develop a lot of followers and became quite popular, uh, actually, for quite some time. I think it's now rather difficult to find. I think they're kind of in between print runs, as far as I can tell. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a game that was a little bit of a slow burn. Is that because, in your opinion, Stephen, does it take a few plays, you know, like TC kind of alluded to, <laughs> to wrap your mind around the best way to play this game? Possibly. Uh it didn't really get much of a splash when it released. Um, it got to... Well, I say it didn't get much of a splash, it, but it got very highly regarded by the people who played it quite mm -hmm. quickly to mm -hmm. uh, top 500 on the BGG. And then very little discussion about it for a couple of years after that until it suddenly becomes something of a cult classic, which, after it's been out of print for a year or so, because I right. don't think it... I'm not sure if it, how many uh, print runs it got of the initial, and it's been out of print for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly there's a reprint on the horizon which no one was expecting to ever really happen because I think most people had just assumed that, okay, this is a good game that just flew under people's radars, so never got any traction. Yeah, and I think that uh, it, as you said uh, very aptly, it kind of became a bit of a cult classic and people really started to latch on to it. One of the things that I'm curious about uh, is this. Um, 
when I first got the game, I played it a lot with my wife as a two-player game. And we had a lot of fun with it. Um, we also played with some friends uh, as a four-player game from time to time. But I played it a lot as a two-player game. And eventually, I have to admit, I ended up kind of moving the game on. Uh, and, and, of course, now I regret it because it's out of print and everybody wants it. But um, at the time, the reason I moved it on was because of a particular tile. Um, it was one of the uh, lock tiles, I believe. And I'm trying to remember which lock it was. But I think it was the lock that, like, activates, like, everything in your tableau at the end of the game. And I remember thinking to myself, it was just so incredibly overpowered that whoever ended up with that lock was going to be at a significant advantage. And so after playing the game a bunch and then saying, eh, I don't like this, I think that that lock is broken, um, and then I kind of moved it on, uh, as you said, Stephen, after a year or so, I start keeping hearing people talking about it, talking about it. I'm like, well, if the game was broken... I don't think this many people would still be playing it. So now I'm kind of curious to talk with someone who's played it a lot. Number one, if you can remind me of which lock that is. And number two, tell me why I made a horrible mistake. Because to <laughs> me, I thought it was overpowered. That lock, uh, which I think is lock locky, it might be lock oik. Okay. Uh, is the one of two locks that actually costs anything mm -hmm. and activates every tile on your tableau immediately, which is huge. It's the only way of activating more than usually five or six uh, tiles at once. And you're doing well to activate five or six at once. But it's a one-off ability and is more powerful the more tiles you have in your tableau. If you're playing an efficiency game, which at two players you're doing less of than at any other player count, count uh, it's really not powerful at all. And actually, I tend to find uh, Loch Ness more useful uh, because that's ongoing and combining Loch Ness with a tavern because Loch Ness allows you to activate any tile on your tableau every single turn. Taverns give you three points every turn. So combining Loch Ness and a tavern means that no tile is ever actually costing you points to uh, play. So I that was that's the you, my usual approach is Loch Ness, Tavern, and try and play an efficiency engine in case that doesn't happen for whatever re reason until I get that combo going. Okay, so because the uh, lock is really only super powerful with a uh, large or bloated, if you want to call it, uh, tile display that is going to blunt it because it's a one time and you may end up having a significant amount of more tiles than your opponent, which is going to cost you as well. So you don't think it's as, as big of a deal as, as I was making it out to be? I don't think it is. Um, it's also more powerful the fewer players there are. 
Ah, well, maybe that's one of the problems then, because I was playing it mostly two-player. Um, and so perhaps that is one of the reasons why I felt it was, it had such a strong pull. Um, you know, it was almost like, boy, when that tile popped up, no matter where you were on that rondelle, most people, well, I'm not going to say most people, my wife or I would just jump for it um, because, you know, it was it was huge. Um, and so it was one of those that, you know, we really kind of um, settled on as, as an overpowered tile. But hearing you explain it, you know, obviously I may have made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> all of these other people can't be wrong. Um, while we're talking about these kind of overpowered, uh, you know, concepts here, uh, Daniel uh, Nedichkovic, um, probably um, butchering that uh, floating world on BGG, uh, he had posted some questions for us, uh, Stephen, on BGG um, on the episode discussion thread. And he wanted to know if there were any other kind of overpowered combos or strategies that you found uh, in repeated play, or do you find the game to, you know, not be saddled with that? In other words, is it fairly well balanced? I tend to find it fairly well balanced. Uh, there are certain strategies that are more reliable than others, certainly, uh, because some strategies are dependent on you getting specific tiles. And if you are going for one of those strategies and don't get the tile that you were needing that can completely... doesn't necessarily destroy your game, but it significantly hampers it. And gotcha, gotcha. So do you think that there's any um, <clears throat> issues with luck of the tile draw in the game? That was another one of his questions. The luck of the tile draw is an interesting one because every tile is going to come out at some point. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of figuring, of playing around what tiles you know are coming out and and not even anticipating, but and sort of playing for them, but in a way that if someone else jumps ahead and gets the tile, you're not going to be completely screwed over by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, you know, did, what did you feel, TC, as a new player, um, someone who's played this game a few times, did you ever kind of feel like hosed by a tile draw, like saying, oh, you know, this is completely random? Or um, did you, you know, feel that you always had good choices? I mean, what were your impressions? Well, this game absolutely is an efficiency game. and You have to be familiar with the tiles and what could possibly come out and when they come out and when to take them. Now, are there overpowered combos and strategies? Well, if you're not on top of your game, they can really seem overpowered because I've been on the receiving end of a, at least one of them. We called it the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> like, oh, wow, there's, a, there's Loch Ness. There's the monster. Holy moly. But on the flip side of that, on the flip side of that, um, the game is short enough so that it really doesn't. I don't really think that's an issue because you can. We played it like four times in a row. We really enjoyed it that much. So you know, you just I just think the the length of the game compensates for any type of overpowered combos or strategy that may exist in it. And I don't know if they are like I was listening to um to uh, over there that I don't know if they really are. You know, it all depends on what you're doing. Like. You said there was a tile there that gives me 
activates every tile I had when I had that mm -hmm. big monster thing going that I didn't realize was going to cost me 15 points. That would have been amazing to have. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that does give the game, I think, a, a, a tactical feel. Um, but it's interesting because I, I agree with Steven that you kind of have to like I, I developed some strategies in the game where I was looking for certain combinations, looking for certain tiles. So I always kind of feel with Glenn Moore that like, I always had a strategic idea going into the game, but the tile draw and what other players took would often force me to make, you know, maybe shift gears or uh, go in a slightly different direction. And so again, that sort of led to a little bit of that feeling of interactivity uh, and sometimes outright annoyance, uh, you know, when yeah. someone would take something that I really, really wanted uh, and was willing to jump ahead and let me take a couple of turns in a row. So um, I felt that the game was an interesting mix of strategy and tactic because to play it well, you definitely wanted to have a plan uh, an overarching kind of a plan, but then you were constantly having to sort of shift and adjust and, and be light on your feet when it came to uh, how the tiles are coming out and, and what other players are doing. Would you agree with that, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you can have an overarching plan, but uh, the order of the tiles requires uh, tactical adjustments of whatever strategies you're uh, pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and while we're talking about strategies, uh, Chris K over on uh, the BGG thread. Um, now, I, none of this means anything to me, Stephen. I don't know if it'll mean anything to you. I, I don't know if it'll mean anything to TC unless he's done a, a ton of reading. Uh, <laughs> the question here is, what are your takes on the strategies posted by uh, Hannibalicious? Um, personally, I've never seen a brown town strategy win. I kind of feel like the, quote, big city and drunk chief strategies are the two most powerful. So love to hear about the drunk chief. Uh, have you heard of <laughs> any of amazing. these terms? <laughs> I want to try the drunk chief strategy. <laughs> anyway, uh, have you heard of these kind of terms? Are you familiar with this person's ideas about the strategies in the game? Uh, no, I uh, had a look at them uh, last night. They make a lot of sense but I think are specifically looking at higher player count strategies. Uh, at two and three players, these... I've never seen a two or three player game end with anyone ha managing to have a town that's only eight or nine tiles, which he's defining as tiny town, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it really depends on the player count, you think? Uh, it really does depend on the player count, what strategies are uh, going to be effective. And uh, at two, even between two and three players, there is a very distinct difference in how you play to the end of round scoring, which um, at the end of each round, you score for uh, guys, cards, and... Uh, guys you've removed from the your tableau, that is, uh, cards and whiskey. Okay. Uh, based on a pattern. So if you're one ahead of the player with the least, you get one point. If you're three ahead of the player in the, with the least, you get three points. It's one, two, three, five, eight. 
So therefore, in a higher player count game, you you do have a, a larger discrepancy then between you know the the last place player and the first place player. There's a lot more points at stake there. Yes. Yes, but also in a two player game, sometimes you just don't stop caring about a particular type of scoring category because there is no way you because the other player has an advan has such an advantage in that that you can't really do anything about that. So getting more of that tile, of, of that uh, scoring... Right, right. ...stops being effective for you. Yeah, which absolutely. also means yeah. it stops being effective for them. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it almost reminds me a little bit of uh, the Speicherstadt. I know this is going to sound like a weird... Uh... Um, connection, but reminds me a little bit of the fireman uh, thing in the Speicherstadt. You know, you can get to a point where you're kind of like, well, you know, I know I'm going to lose this many points, but don't really care. Um, it's going to, I'm going to have to invest so much in order to compete with them that um, it's not going to allow me to accomplish these other goals that I have. And so therefore, if I think I can make up those points in another way, I cease to care about that and I just let it go. Um, and it sounds to me as though that's kind of the, the, the similar kind of thing you're talking about with Glenn Moore, yes? Yes, uh, absolutely. But in a larger player count game, because it's compared to yours with the least, mm -hmm. there never becomes a point where you stop caring about a particular uh, category. Because if the player with the most Tams and uh, Chiefs off the board... Uh, has eight, and I've got two, two. But someone else has four. Mm -hmm. Then my getting another one matters again, because yes. whilst I'm not going to be able to stop the person ahead of it getting eight, then now I'm going to. But I am uh, helping reduce the gap between the next player. So there's always a race at every position for them at larger player counts, whereas two, it can get to a point where the one particular thing stops mattering. Right, right. So while we're talking about player count here, do you feel that there is a best player count? Uh, first, I'm going to open that up to you, Stephen, and then uh, I'd like TC's kind of thoughts about it as well when you're done. Uh, it plays best for me at uh, the mid-player counts, three or four players. Uh, and at three or four, because like most games with a tight where you're drafting tiles from a mark from a market of any sort, the main difference in player count is how quickly the tiles are flowing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With this one in particular, it, that will determine how large a tableau you wind up building. With the with five, you don't really get anything and you don't really get enough tiles to get an engine going gotcha With two you two feels really weird because of how bloated the uh uh tableaus you're building are wind up being even if you're being quite efficient because you've got that much ex many extra turns uh with three or four feels like the optimal tile flow to me on the game and uh, I think this is uh, probably a decent 
point to mention how the game handles uh, scaling with uh, two or three players. Uh, you've got a die which is one 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 two two three, and the die just takes turns when it's at the back of the uh, when it would take a turn if it was a player, mm-hmm. and just moves forward the amount of spaces. Uh, Shown and then you just remove the tile from play, uh, meaning that there is a bit more luck in a lower player count game, but that does uh, mean that the for the purposes of tile count and the amount of turns you're taking, a three-player game is essentially going to be the same as a four-player game in terms of. Uh, how quickly the game flows, how many tiles, how large your tableau is going to be at the end of the game. So, um, and there's a, and you see, precede the marker at lower player counts with a little bit of cash. Right, right. Well, I appreciate you reminding us about that uh, sort of dummy player because I had kind of completely forgotten about that until you said something. And I got to tell you, I loved that that uh, die. I mean, there are a couple of games that I can think of. Um, but before I kind of go on to make this point, I'm, I'm going to ramble a little bit here. There's a lot of games that have this uh, idea of, well, you can play it, but you need to play with a dummy player, you know, a, a sort of an AI, a fake player. And there are often very, very sort of convoluted sort of decision trees or rules for how that works. And this game and Alhambra, I thought, have the two absolute favorite of mine uh, dummy players. Because as you said, Stephen, just roll the die, move it forward, take that tile out of the game. And it felt exactly like there was another player um, at the table because, you know, oftentimes, you know, just before I'm about to go and and grab a tile, I'm sweating out the player, um, you know, who's about to take their turn. Are they going to snag the one that I was looking at? Are they going to take it? Are they going to take it because it works really well for them? Are they going to hate draft it uh, because they know it's really going to work for me? And so I felt that the die didn't make it feel too random. Um, in my opinion, it kind of simulated a, another player very well and extremely easily. Like, there's no overhead to that. And Alhambra was very similar. You know, at the end of, uh, you know, when you do the scorings, you just draw a certain number of tiles out of the bag randomly. And it's like, oh, okay, well, now they have the majority in Brown, uh, in, you know, uh, Soralios. And so they're going to, uh, you know, take first place in that category. And I thought that. Uh, those kinds of uh, systems um, I-, I love because they don't interfere with me playing the game. They're, they're very yeah. simple, very fast, very streamlined. Um, and so I just want to kind of uh, point that out to people listening because I think it's a great, great um, accomplishment as a designer. If you can manage to pull off something that's going to function well, and simulate that feel of having another person at the table, but without having to do the very clumsy, well, I'm going to play the neutral player this turn, and then you're going to play the neutral player next turn. It's like, oh, my God. That's like the Seven Wonders original yes. two-player there. Don't go there. And, and I'm like, it was terrible, terrible. So I really love that about this game. Um, TC, what would you say about player count? Uh, what, what were the player counts you, you uh, played the game at? I played them all 
three or four of mine were at four players. And I was really, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask about how that dummy player worked because just seeing that made me go, oh man, I don't know if I want to try that or not. Because every time I've run across a dummy player, it's been like really not good. So that gives me some um, encouragement to, to give it a shot. Um, I think I would still prefer it at a higher player count, like four three or four, possibly five, because I just, there's more possibilities of watching someone get something going, realize what they have going, realize what tile they need and go, yeah, that's not going to happen. And just take it away from them and watch them just rage out. It's such a delicious feeling. Like they call that hate drafting. Yeah. Yeah. Hate drafting. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's, that is not my, that is not my term. I can't take credit for that, but it is a really good way of describing uh, that, that feeling for sure. So, um, uh, Stephen, um, I, I also wanted to kind of, uh, ask a question, another one posed by Chris K here. Um, this idea of, uh, is there a, uh, you know, he talks about the phenomenon when, when people jump way ahead to grab a primo tile that is really going to work for them and then lets the other players behind just gobble up all of these other tiles that maybe aren't, uh, fantastic for that player, but work well for them. Is it a is it kind of a rookie mistake to allow people? Or I'm not I'm not saying allow people. Is it a rookie mistake to jump too far ahead? In most games like this, where you can go as far as ahead of you like as you like, and uh, then other players can just follow, then that's usually a really suboptimal uh, thing to do. In in Glenmore, I'm not sure it is. Mm, okay. Because every turn someone takes is costing them three points. If they can't get three points over the course of the game from a move, they shouldn't make that move. This reduces the amount of, uh, like in Takai, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where unless you've got a very good reason not to do it, you're going to take the next available action spot. Right. In Glamour, that's not the case because if it's not going to help you enough, then you may be worse off for taking a, making a particular move. As we've said before, Glamour is an efficiency engine. It's mm-hmm. a game where you have to build an efficiency engine even getting more tiles makes it harder to place tiles in places which will help you later down the road at times. So uh, there's the spatial aspect as well as simply the cost of three points uh, to consider. That's true. Um, and, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're right. When you're looking at your your uh, uh, your uh, black meeples that are going to be activating your tiles, the larger your sort of uh, uh, burrow is, okay, um, the more difficult it's going to be to place tiles in a way that you can activate them efficiently. You're going to have to be moving people a lot. And every time you move people from a good location where, look, I've got this this location really set up nicely with these four tiles that are going to activate. If I have to move that guy in order to activate this one, then I'm missing out on that. So, yeah, I, I think I get what you're saying there. So uh, this is a game that actually would discourage that, in your opinion. All right. Um <laughs> Well, yeah, I always want to echo that. But it's that in-game scoring where you lose three points per tile that really balances that whole thing out. Because there was a few plays where I played this where everyone jumped ahead and like, cool, I can just do like five things in a row. Ha, ha, ha. And that and 
they weren't efficient moves. I thought they were great moves. They were not, and it bit me so hard that it wasn't even funny. Yeah, I think that, you know, we all like to build things, yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people, I think, inherently... I think it's one of the reasons why Tableau Builders and uh, uh, Civilization games and things are just so popular is that I think that, you know, a lot of people, it seems like we're, we're kind of wired to love to build things and we're wired to love to fight, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're wired to destroy and create and, and we seem to dig both equally, um, sadly. But, um, yeah, I mean, I totally get that because in my early plays, TC, I mean, I was just like so pleased as punch when my wife would jump ahead. Yeah. I'm like, look, I can make this and I can do this and I can do this. I'm like, woo, look at it. It's so pretty. And then later, you you're know, like, oh. it's like the tax man comes around and you're like, oh my God, you know, I've, I'm completely hosed here. And so, yeah, it's, it's an eye opener and it's a really interesting uh, choice in the design that really forces um, you to think carefully about those decisions. And that's why I think that this is a, a very exceptional example of using that Rondell kind of mechanic. Um, Stephen, uh, uh, apparently there's a new game, I don't know anything about it, that has come out called Lunarchitects. And I've heard people talking about this game quite a bit and comparing it to Glenmore. Have you had a chance to play that? Because I haven't. And people are asking, like, hey, how does this compare to that? I have played it, yes. Uh, it's... It ran on Kickstarter uh, last year, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. It was either it either ran early last year or late 2015. Uh, delivered uh, a few months ago. Uh, okay. I'm not sure how much we want to go into the uh, controversies over how that Kickstarter was run. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave that at the door and just talk yeah. about the game. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I, I've read a, a couple <laughs> interesting things and... Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, anyway, so uh, since you had the chance to play the game, how do you think it compares? Lost for words? Uh, <laughs> that great of an experience? <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of stuff that's a little bit better. Okay. A bunch of stuff that's a little bit better in it, but it removes the uh, minus three point penalty. Mm. At least in most scoring schemas, because that's how it introduces uh, more long-term variability into the game, is to have uh, you start with a random amount of you start with a random set of scoring schemas, two for the end and one for each uh, round, each lap of the uh, board. But by doing that, it removes the constant each turn is going to cost you three points aspect, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which completely loosens the game. It removes a lot of the tension. Another thing that the it does that reduces the tension is uh, it streamlines the coins and points. So you've got uh, a point. So when you get a point, that point now works as a coin for you which makes it much easier to acquire stuff from the market mm -hmm. and much and but that in turn reduce removes the possibility of getting a monopoly on a resource you can't get a coin monopoly you can't block someone from having access to an entire resource 
So it makes a lot of things that on paper are good, but there's a couple of big changes to changes it makes to the game to uh, Glenn Moore that just don't quite work overall yeah. for the game. It, mechanically, I like I do like Lunar Architects, but it just doesn't quite have the same uh doesn't have the same teeth. Doesn't yeah. uh yeah, yeah. It sounds like they kind of softened Glenmore in a lot of ways and uh maybe blunted it uh and and made it a little bit more friendly. Um and you know, there are gonna be people I yep. think that are very drawn to that. And then I think there are gonna be people who are kinda like, mm, no, I prefer the original tighter, tougher decisions, uh uh kind of game. Would you would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would. It's also got the weirdest theme I have ever seen in a game. <laughs> okay. Well, that's quite a statement. <laughs> it's not themed about building a moon base. Right. It's themed of working at an architecture firm, firm who's got a contract for building a moon base, doing a gamified trading exercise your boss thought up. For right. improving how you build this your moon bases. Right, right. So it's kind of like uh instead of a World War II game uh, you know, about uh, uh the this uh, fantastic tank battle in North Africa, you're in the tank simulator training for the epic tank battle that may someday happen, right? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what the theme is. And it's <laughs> why that's actually kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to give them credit for trying something slightly different. I mean, geez, you know, we've got games about just about every theme now. So now we're making uh, games about game. simulations of, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, going to open up. A, exactly. It's going to like open up a game on game vortex or something. Um so that's just very interesting. Um, well, Stephen, one other question I wanted to ask you that somebody had uh, asked is, uh, and I think it's a good one, which is when you look at uh, Matthias Kramer's kind of uh, most kind of well-known games, which uh, I'm sure someone's going to beat me up for this, but for me, it's Glenmore, Lancaster, uh, Rococo, Craft Wagon, um, and you know maybe Helvetia. I, that that's one that hasn't gotten a huge amount of traction here in the United States. But I've I've owned it. I've played it. Uh, it's a very interesting take um, on on workers um, because you have both uh, male and female workers, and there's marriages, and uh, you know people move from one town to another and have children, which go to school to become you know new workers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, out of uh, the the games of of his that you've played, where would you rank Glenmore? Uh, Glenmore is actually the only one I've played of his. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, All right. That was fantastic. That was well, my that was first Kramer a... game. Oh, really? That was your first Kramer yeah. game? And that okay. ate crow on that one so hard because I was making fun of it. Oh, we're going to make dresses? <laughs> How cute is that? This looks stupid. And I played it and I was like, <laughs> this is really, really cool. I'm, I'm sorry I made fun of this game. This is fantastic. Yes, I, I remember thinking that was an interesting theme choice too. You know, But now we have a game about uh, making perfume where you actually have to smell things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to see where people are going uh, with themes. So would, do you think Rococo is one that worked better for you than Glenmore? Or where would you place it? Oh, you know, I would 
I haven't played Glenmore enough to really make this an Orococo for that, but I would happily play either one of these. Um, right now, I'm a little bit more into Glenmore just because of a more recent play, and mm-hmm. I've seen how things can spiral out of control, and it makes me want to play it again. I really enjoy playing games that kick me in the stomach. The harder a game kicks me in the stomach, the more I want to go back to it and try to figure out what I did wrong and how I can play it better. Yeah, well, games that offer a challenge are often a lot of fun. I would agree with that. Um, You know, I've played uh, all of the games that I've mentioned, including uh, Plums, which was Paimau Flaumen or something um, originally, which is a little card game that he did. Um, You know, he's one of those really, really solid designers. I always enjoy his games. Um, You know, Glenn Moore, as usual, I talk with somebody about a game that I traded away, and now I probably want to try it again after talking with Steven here and it's okay, maybe I need to play it more than two players. Um, but I, I really think Lancaster in my personal opinion, I absolutely adore Lancaster, uh, especially when you play with the new laws expansion. It just Lancaster does so much so well. If neither of you gentlemen have tried Lancaster, I would seriously recommend it. Uh, it is a, a fantastic design, and uh, you know, since the show is not about Lancaster, I'm not going to say more than that. But uh, definitely one that's worth uh, checking out. So, um, you know, he's very good at doing a twist on things. In Lancaster, it's uh, how bidding is handled. In uh, Rococo, it's that hand management. That's uh, it's the hand management thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And in Glenmore, it's that sort of rondelle and the efficiency uh, aspects that uh, Stevens pointed out so well to us. So uh, I hope that answers people's questions about uh, kind of our thoughts about the ranking of it. And Steven, I definitely recommend you try any other uh, of his games because mm-hmm. they're uh, definitely intriguing titles. So uh, maybe think about giving that a shot one of these days. Um, Steven, you know, I always ask my guests, is there anything about a game that you don't care for or that, um, maybe you're hoping is going to be addressed in the next edition, uh, something that you would like to see different in the game, something that doesn't work for you? Uh, the difference in order of the tiles in each game, game and that being the only difference between game to game, uh, limits how the long-term replayability of it a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in terms of it ever feels like I'm done with the game, but after play, but it tends to be I play it uh, six, ten times uh, in a few month period, and then put it on the shelf for a year, year, year and a half, and then play it again six, 12 times over a short, fairly short period before mm-hmm. putting it onto the shelf again. If uh, there's a way of just giving it a little bit more long-term variety, uh, an alternate set of uh, the... Uh, castles and locks, for example, right. would or just an alternate set of special abilities for the castles and locks when they come out, since those are on cards anyway. That could be done potentially done without too much of uh faffing for production, but then you wouldn't be able to necessarily plan for what comes next. So 
any change I can think of that you could make to the game would potentially hurt the game more than it helps it. Uh, would- yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, would, would you agree about that, TC? I sometimes wonder about this with expansions in general. You know, sometimes expansions seem to, uh, in in the the quest always seems to be more variety, more long term replayability, keep the game fresh, um, keep it on people's tables longer. But sometimes I feel like the expansions do, as Stephen just described, kind of almost um, detract from the game because. They take away an element or blunt an element um, of the gameplay or the strategic considerations that you use in the game. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, well, in terms of considering expansions for this game, I'm not entirely sure how they would actually benefit this game in particular because everything mm-hmm. seems so tightly integrated. You know, we haven't really talked about like when you want to put your chieftains back to score things, you know, when you want to go to the market to buy things. So that's saying people just go run away with money and win with money. Um, all that seems really tightly balanced. We didn't even talk about whiskey yeah. in this game. You How can you not talk about whiskey? whiskey? Yeah. Shame on us. Shame on us. Talk yeah. to us about there whiskey, is... TC, because it's it's 11, it's 11 o'clock now, Eastern Standard Time, which means yeah. I could whiskey maybe have whiskey it? and not be you know worried about myself. So talk to us a little bit about the whiskey. <laughs> Yeah, it's just another mechanic where you can you spin, was it a yellow cube if you have the distillery to get whiskey, and then you can cash that whiskey out, was it for three points, or you can keep them to get victory points at the end. There is so much going on in this game for the time span. I, I would almost say you throw an expansion in there, it might actually tilt or, you know, it might shift the balance of that game in a particular direction. Um, but the one thing I would say that needs to be addressed in this game, the one big complaint I have is the font on the tiles. Oh. Good Lord. I was like trying to figure out, okay, so if I trade this many cubes and I get this many victory points, that was like a negative 200 font on that tile. I'm like <laughs> pulling it up, trying to figure out. It's like a question mark. So like, is a question mark any cube? Yeah, okay, but this brown, but this yellow cube's really tiny. I gotta like get this real close. It's like, oh man, that, if there's a reprint of this, can you just like make that a little bit more legible? That would yeah. be big help for me maybe i'm just blind yeah and... it, the game is a 2010 game it shows <laughs> yeah it does <laughs> yeah just be aware that you know if you're building your tableau just get it close to your face or get close to your tableau to figure yes. it out yeah and yeah. the um and then when you connect them you know it goes road to road and water to water right mm-hmm. and that's fairly easy but those those little white to white and blue to blue are pretty tiny and there was one game where i just didn't catch it i put like a road to nothing and you know, <laughs> because i just put it down there i was just like I, you know and it was just an obvious mistake i wasn't paying attention it took we were like two-thirds of the game when uh, one of my players went hey hey, hey you can't hey, do what's that, that? That's right. He's, he told you you were making the proverbial road to nowhere. Uh, yeah, I was like, <laughs> talking oh. heads road to nowhere. That's right. You're right. That, I couldn't do that. Oh, well, let's go to game four now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these things do happen. And and I agree with you. Uh, now that I'm kind of remembering and looking at some pictures while you're talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh, I almost wish that the tiles, wish the tiles could be a little bigger. Yeah, the tiles uh, need to be a little bit bigger. Maybe to uh, 
I think they're a little bit smaller than carcassonne tiles if they just increase to carcassonne size tiles. Now, they might be slightly bigger, but not by much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. It would be it would be nice if they if they were a little bit larger. I agree, Stephen. If and if they had a little bit clearer font, I agree with that as well. TC um, cubes check, and it's twenty seventeen. Uh, the cubes probably should be shaped be shaped wood in a reprint rather than cubes. Yeah, I'll have like wheat and animal mm. meals for the pasture. That'd be kind of cool. I'd like that. Yeah. That'd be neat. <laughs> Would It'd be all right. It'd be all right. But you know, again, I, I'm I'm a little I'm a little old school. I don't <laughs> mind the the cubes myself. You know, like I I know that there are so many people who loved Agricola with all of the little animeeples and whatnot. I'm like, you know what? I I'm perfectly happy with my white cubes for sheep. You know, uh, I, I'm good with that. But I do see your point, Stephen. And in, in, in this day and age of like scythe and mechs versus minions, uh, people are going to want something a little bit different than cubes. I would agree with that. The other thing that needs to be changed for a a reprint the green and brown tiles yes color was a slight issue when i was playing it i recall that yeah i have played this game with someone with uh, red green color blindness ah okay that yeah that and especially the ta- there's a tile in the game that scores for green tiles you've got he hadn't figured that the green and the brown tiles were different colors mm that's got to be really frustrating um absolutely yeah yeah because you just uh yeah and and it's one of those things colorblindness is one of those things that apparently is much more prevalent than i thought it was um you know and i remember uh, playing a a game with a gentleman uh, that was in the game group that i was in for a little while and yeah he would have to ask you know he would have to be like what color is this you know is this red and you know it, it took me all of about five seconds to realize he was colorblind and yeah, I mean, I, that, that's got to be incredibly annoying. Um, and I, you know, I love games that find a way to help with that. I've seen so many games, uh, Stephen, where they put like a little symbol yeah. uh, on a card like they do in uh, uh, Ticket to Ride, mm-hmm. you know, just something to help people and say, ah, OK, I know that if I see this symbol, that means this is brown, this is green. And I think that would be really easy to yeah. do with a Celtic art kind of style. Yes. Um, um, just put a little icon. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I I hope that maybe uh, someone thought of that, but I think because it's it's a an issue that flies under a lot of people's radar. I don't think anybody intentionally is like, yeah, heck with those colorblind people. I don't care about them. <laughs> I, I think it's more of a just a, a a lack of knowledge at the prevalence of it because yeah. I've been kind of surprised, and I've also learned that there are degrees of colorblindness. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are people who are perfectly fine, but if the um, if the, the, the tone is similar, I'm sure tone is the wrong word, but if, if it's close, you know, there are some um, uh, shades or hues of colors that are a little closer to each other. They don't have the saturation. And, you know, someone may be colorblind at that point. Like, they really can't distinguish those two. And yet, you know, if it was a, a little bit more of a highly saturated color, they'd be able to, you know. So yeah. I wasn't aware of that. It's something that's... Board game, the board game industry is definitely getting better at dealing with. Uh, I'm not sure it's there yet across the board, but right. there has definitely been some definite improvements over just the past five to ten years. Uh, yeah, yeah I would agree. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I don't think is intentional. I've and it's really prevalent. I ran across it. It was it was either playing Brass or Age of Industry. 
and the player I was playing with kept referring to the symbol instead of the color. And, you know, it's as simple a fix as that, you know, it's mm -hmm. not a really, it's just, it's just something you have to be conscious of in your game design, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Stephen, um, we've, we've covered a lot about uh, Glenn Moore. We've looked at the strategies, we've looked at the mechanisms, we've uh, talked a, a lot about it, but is there anything that you wanted to kind of um, discuss that maybe we haven't circled our way around to that you'd like to bring up about this game before we uh, draw the discussion to a close? Let's just say it's awesome and play it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. That's not a problem at all. I caught you a little off guard there. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time to discuss uh, Glenn Moore with us here. I think we've covered a lot of the bases. We've looked at, uh, you know, the strategy, the tactics, the production, um, you know, the, the player count, all of those things. So, uh, you know, this is a game that once again, is one that, uh, you know, I may end up reacquiring because, you know, I judged it based on, uh, you know, the two-player merits. It was a game that I had in my collection early on, totally bought for the theme. And, you know, just listening to you two gentlemen talking about it and TC reminding me of the market and, and the whiskey and, uh, you know, you talking about the efficiency engine aspects of it, Stephen, just really yes. kind of piques my interest once again. So as an ambassador for Glenmore, I think you've done a fantastic job. So thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Not a problem. And TC, thanks for uh, diving in there with us and uh, playing some uh, games. So, you know, you have some experience from a new player's perspective. I think it's always great to have both ends of that spectrum. And since my plays were kind of in the distant past there, um, you know, as far as my, my failing memory goes, um, you know, it's always great to have that perspective. So I appreciate you coming uh, on the show with me and uh, chiming in there as well. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Stephen, because um, I'd never played this game. I wasn't even, I was kind of aware of it a little bit, but once this was going to be an episode, it made me go out and do it. And it's, oh, it was such a delicious, fantastic game. And I wouldn't have probably played it otherwise unless it was for you, Stephen. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for recommending it. And it is just thanks. Thank you very much. Not a problem. Well, for Stephen and TC and myself, I want to say uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. If you um, you know are interested in Glenmore, there are some copies available in the aftermarket, um, and it sounds like you know there is a reprint coming on the horizon. And if you have the opportunity to play this one, maybe at a, a local game group or meetup, you know, ask your partners in crime if they have a copy of it, bring it along and check it out and try out Stephen's suggestions there for your strategy and tactics and. I'm sure you will have a great time with Glenn Moore. So uh, for everybody here at The Long View, thanks for listening and have a great night.